I'm Dr. Noah Emery. I'm Dr. Sam Acuff. And this is the Addiction Psychologist Podcast. On this very special episode of the Addiction Psychologist Podcast, we're going to be talking with the legendary Dr. Bill Miller. Dr. Miller is an emeritus distinguished professor of psychology and psychiatry at the University of New Mexico. And as you may have guessed, we're going to be talking all about his work developing and refining motivational interview. Dr. Miller, welcome to the show. Thank you. We're uh, just could not be more excited to have you on the show. Um, Sam and I are just huge fans of your work, both clinically from a research perspective, um, you know, use these principles all the time. And so we're just really, really genuinely excited to have you on the show. Um, and so we'd like to start all of our discussions with our guests to talk a little bit about your training history to help our audience know a little bit about uh, your background and your training. And so if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit, a little bit about your background, please. Well, there's been a fair amount of happenstance in my uh, <laughs> in my preparation. And I think one of the most fortunate things is the the faculty at the University of Oregon had the wisdom to require a year of training and basically person-centered skills, how to talk to clients before we got into the behavioral uh, therapies. Uh, and so really the first thing I learned uh, was a person-centered approach right out of Carl Rogers. Mm. Um, and it was from an academic grandchild of Carl Rogers, as a matter of fact. They went over to the counseling psych program uh, and hired a professor from there who was a student of Leona Tyler who was one of Carl Rogers' students and uh, taught us how to listen and how to be ourselves and be present with clients. And that's how I've always practiced uh, cognitive behavior therapy from the beginning, thanks to that preparatory training. And uh, and that was very influential in uh, the emergence of motivational interviewing as well. Uh, then we got very good cognitive behavioral training. Uh, that was the primary orientation of the faculty but they always just fit together naturally for me. Sounds like um, a lot of the early common sort of common factors type uh, work was sort of your, your sort of seminal training and, and everything was sort of built off of that. Yes. And I, as you may know, I did a book on uh, what makes psychotherapists more effective in 2021. Uh, and we went back literally through 70 years of psychotherapy research saying, why is it that doing what seems like the same therapy out of the same manual even, um, and all closely supervised, you still get really different client outcomes based on who the therapist was. And those effects are usually different and larger from the uh, effects of uh, having different the theoretical orientations or specific techniques that are being uh, practiced. And so that was there from the very beginning for me, but I'm still interested in it. And uh, we we found eight factors that are associated with being more effective behavior therapist or uh, psychotherapist or probably physician, teacher, you know, other kinds of yeah. helping professions as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think at one point when we were discussing this episode, you you sort of hinted at maybe how that has has informed the way you're you're looking back and thinking about motivational interviewing now with the recent edition of of your book. So 
I, that's something that I, I think maybe we should we should bookmark and remember to come back to. Um, okay. I, I, I would love to hear a little bit more about that. Um, and as Noah mentioned, I mean, so much of what, even what you just described, right? So much of your work uh, has been so seminal and and important and impactful, and and you've influenced the way people think in research and in practice. Um, and I think we'd like to sort of start off by like, what was the inspiration behind motivational interviewing? Yeah, it's it's a good story because it was literally evoked from me. I I went on my on my first sabbatical leave. Uh, there's a, just happenstance all over the place in my career. Yeah. On my first sabbatical leave, I went to Norway where I was uh, working at an alcoholism hospital outside Bergen. Uh, and my job was to lecture on cognitive behavioral treatment of addictions, you know, which I was happy to do. Uh, the director also said, would you mind also meeting with our uh, clinical staff, with our psychologists and social workers? And, you know, most of them are kind of recently out of school and just have a discussion every couple of weeks or so. And I said, sure, I can do that. Uh, and I was teaching them both some behavioral uh, therapies and also a person-centered way of working with clients, teaching them empathic listening. Um, and they wanted to not just listen to me talk about it, but they wanted me to show them uh, what does it look like. And fortunately, they would uh, role play the clients that they were seeing that they were finding challenging in English. Um, and we, we would just kind of have these conversations. I would do my best to at least show how I would respond. And they did something that my American students rarely did. While we're in the middle of a demonstration, they would stop me, uh, interrupt and say, now, what, what are you thinking right now? Hmm. Um, now, you asked a question. How did you decide to ask that question? Because you you could have asked all kinds of things. Why that question? Are you, you're teaching us about reflective listening. You did reflect something the client said just now. But gosh, the client said lots of things. Why that? Why did, why did you reflect that? How did you make that decision? And so they're asking what's going on in my head while I'm uh, doing what I'm practicing, basically. Um, and what we came up with together was a kind of a set of decision rules that were embarrassingly different from what I was lecturing about in the next room. <laughs> um, and <laughs> And had to do basically with arranging the conversation so that it's the client who makes the arguments for change hmm. ra rather than me. Now, that that was rather different from the American style of addiction counseling at the time, which was very authoritarian, yes. uh, expert focused, sit down, shut up. You don't know anything. I'm going to tell you what's wrong with you and what you need to do. Uh, at, he, at times, still the approach. It, you can still find it. Yeah. You know? yeah. Uh, well, and guess what? Human beings don't really warm up to that way of being treated yeah. you know, that that approach um so but but this was i mean i i had no concept of motivational interviewing when i went to norway uh we just developed these kind of decision rules about how you work with clients um and another one was when you when you feel like you're getting what we then call resistance never don't push back against it you know don't argue against it don't don't fight it, you know, but uh, but listen to it well and, and kind of go with it for a while. And they so they watched me do that as well. Uh, 
And I wrote down these decision rules that we were coming up with. And I sent it. I did what Carl Rogers called a discussion paper, which is when you get some ideas, you just write them down and you send them around to smart colleagues and say, you know, what do you think about this? And I gave it the name motivational interviewing. Motivational because it's about motivation for change. And interviewing because in English, it's a power neutral term. You can't tell who's in charge, really. You, it may be an employer trying to decide who to hire, in which case the, the interviewer is in charge. It could be a college student interviewing a famous visitor to campus and trying to learn something about what they do. Uh, so I like that power neutrality. It seemed to, to fit the uh, style because you also honor, respect, uh, and emphasize the person's freedom of choice, their mm. autonomy, that they, they get to make the decisions about what they're going to do. Um, so it just seemed like a reasonable name for it. Uh, well, one of the people I sent it to was a friend named Ray Hodson, who lived in Wales, uh, and had just been there to, uh, we celebrated Thanksgiving dinner in Norway with a Brit, you know, but but uh, <laughs> he, he had just been there and visiting. So I thought of him, I, I sent it to him as well. Uh, and he read it and said, I want to publish this. And I said, Ray, we just made it up here. I mean, we, I, I have no data. The only numbers are the page numbers, for goodness sakes. Uh, and he said, no, I, th I think it's an important paper. Let me publish it. So, well, okay. And cut it in half, which editors always say. You know, so, <laughs> so I did that. I cut it in half. And he gave it for peer review to a young student who was with him named Steve Rolnick, hmm. whom, I, whom I would not meet for seven more years. And I you know, didn't know who reviewed it, of course, because they don't tell you. Um, but that's how the first description of motivational interviewing wound up published and published in a journal called Behavioral Psychotherapy. So people get this mixed up with behavior therapy, uh, but it, it's definitely rooted in Carl Rogers and a person-centered kind of approach. Hmm. Well, seven years later, I go to Australia on a second sabbatical to work at the Addiction Research Center in Sydney. And in the office next to me is this guy named Steve Rolnick. And he said, you the guy who wrote that paper on motivational interviewing? I said, well, you, you read it. Thank you. That's, I'm, I'm impressed. He said, read it. Now, I'm trying to teach this. This has become a kind of preferred method of treatment in addiction in the UK. And I don't even know if I'm doing it right. You know, so you got to write some more. <laughs> so I said, well, show me what you do. And so we, we practiced and he understood beautifully, deeply what, what I was trying to convey in that mm -hmm. paper. And he had thought a lot about how to teach it because it hadn't had a lot of request for for training of it at that point and so i said look let's just write a book together and and out of that happenstance came the first edition of the book motivational interviewing uh and and he brought important perspectives to the book and and really what we've always collaborated on writing ever since and what we come up with is better than either one of us would have come up with on our own and it arises out of the dialogue out of our mm conversations with each other so that's been a really rewarding experience too but it didn't start with a theory it it started from close observation of practice and saying why why did you do that and what and you know how else could you have done that and so on um and uh and that's how the person-centered approach with Carl Rogers began as well uh 
just by close observation of practice, paying attention to mm-hmm. what's going on with uh, with practice and not not starting with the theory. Rogers eventually came up with a theory uh, that may or may not have much to do with the actual practice, you know. Uh, yeah. and, and we've had some thoughts about theory and motivational interviewing, but it sure didn't start from a preconceived yeah. notion. We sort of come into, I think, our field and into science um, with theories already out there, and we sort of jump in and test those theories. But I think the basis of, of science is that observation that yes. leads to theory to testing. And so you kind of were building this out of, I think, the core the core of, of what science is. And, and from that has come hypotheses, has come empiricism and data. Well, and in, in fact, clinical science in psychology started with Carl Rogers. Yep. I mean, he became president of APA in 1947. And there were almost no clinicians in APA at that point. It was all scientists in different branches hmm. who kind of looked down their nose at clinical psychology because we're we're experimental scientists, you know. And Roger said, "No, you can you can observe what therapists are doing." Audio yeah. recording was relatively new at the time, and he was doing that, listening to audio recordings. You can measure client outcomes. You can look at the relationship between what the therapist does and client outcomes. So, what's now called therapeutic mechanisms research. Uh, this was starting with Carl Rogers in nineteen in the nineteen fifties. So that that's where our science began in clinical psychology. Yeah. Agreed, and and also I think it it follows in, uh, a trajectory that is common now that we have these conversations a lot with people like yourself who are on the show, where there's all these kind of happy accidents that oh, take yes. place that just just generate inspiration through observation and collaboration that was unexpected. Um, and, you know, I think some of the greatest discoveries that we have both in our field and more broadly in science, you know, like penicillin, for instance, like an accident, right? Um, yeah. And things like this. And so I think it's really important also for the audience, um, like trainees and, and people like that, that are listening to the show to really understand that like a lot of it's, a, that's okay, right? Like uh, that's not a, that's not a bug. It's a feature of the, of the science is to collaborate and, and to get inspired by people and people to ask tough questions and for you to have mm-hmm. to think mm-hmm. deeply about it and put some words on a page to, you know, to yeah. kind of materialize and operationalize this approach that's kind of just been in your mind. Um, and then, you know, that's how it's kind of born. Uh, and so, you know, I think there's something really elegant and beautiful about how this, you know, like many great discoveries, I think is kind of born from that. One of the few things that Carl Rogers and B.F. Skinner agreed about was believe your data. You know, when, <laughs> when, you, when you collect your data, if you, if you did it well, Pay attention, and it, and if it's not what you expected, get curious and get interested and follow it. And m- most of my studies did not produce what I expected, and mm-hmm. what yeah. we found what we found was better than what we expected. Yes, yes. So stay curious in that way, and you know, really try to understand it. Which is, you know, I'm assuming a little bit maybe how some of the the you know the mechanisms research that's been done on MI. Um, has kind of come to life. And so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about, um, you know, what are the kind of core philosophies and mechanisms as you see it of MI and kind of maybe how you came to those conclusions? Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a relational base, uh, I mean, therapeutic relationship. And uh, I mean, that when I wrote that book on the effective psychotherapists, we came up with that list of eight characteristics. 
And then I looked at the list and I said, they look familiar. <laughs> like seven out of eight have been part of motivational even from the beginning, uh, kind of developing a strong therapeutic relationship. And, and the one that Steve and I had not talked about, genuineness, which also has a, a main effect, uh, we addressed in the fourth edition because we shouldn't have left it out. Uh, and so in, in a way, there's this strong relational foundation of motivational interviewing, which is a part of what makes it work, I think. And when I went to Norway, I had a study just published, uh, behavioral treatment for alcohol problems. And we also measured, because of my Rogerian training, how well therapists were listening to their clients. We used the accurate empathy scale for that. Well, that predicted two-thirds of the variance in outcomes. Uh, and different behavioral techniques that we use weren't that different from each other. But my word, how well the therapist listened, predicted how many drinks per week people were having six months, 12 months, 24 months later, you know. Hmm. So, you know, there's there's a message, at least, that it's not just the techniques, at least. And Bruce Wampold says it's really not the techniques, uh, you know, but but how you are as a therapist with the person. So that's crucial in motivational interviewing. And sometimes I think that's what we've been studying for 40 years of hmm. what it, what is it that makes helpers helpful? You know? Yeah. But we added to a person-centered approach this focus on client language, uh, change talk, uh, we call it. So clients own arguments for change, which is what we were finding in Bergen, Norway, that what I was doing was arranging the conversation so the client would tell me why they ought to make a change rather than my telling them. So we, we began paying attention to that, to change talk and its opposite, which we, we've given the name sustained talk, which is arguments to stay the same. So there's the heart of ambivalence. And clients come to us with both. Mm. They come to us wanting to change and not wanting to change at the same time. And it, it's not unique to psychotherapy and healthcare get diagnosed with diabetes. Here's a whole list of things you should do to stay healthy. And I don't really want to do it. You know, it's that. So ambivalence, which I wrote another book on last year, uh, is, is us, is human nature. You know? hmm. But how do you respond to that as a therapist? And, and so we've developed a series of ways of responding to encourage the change talk uh, and to not exacerbate the sustained talk. And the balance of those two, the literally the ratio of those two, how much change talk you're hearing versus how much sustained talk you're hearing predicts whether change is going to happen. Uh, and that's not just true in motivational anything. It's true in behavior therapy, too. It's also true in 12-step facilitation. So in, in the big project match study, uh, Terry, Terry Moyers did an analyses in all three therapeutic conditions and found this relationship between change talk and outcome. Uh, and it's not, as, it's not as simple as just change talk because it turns out, Molly McGill has found this, that, that actually client sustained talk seems to even be a stronger predictor. So if you're counseling in a way that's causing the client to be resistive and to mm -hmm. argue against change, they are literally talking themselves out of it. And, and arguments from the client against change are actually more potent than the client's arguments for change. So you need to manage, manage both of those. Uh, and we have specific strategies for, for doing that, for encouraging, inviting, um, cultivating change talk. 
um, and responding to sustained talk in a way that doesn't exacerbate it. And so that's the other piece above and beyond the relational component. Uh, and it does appear to add above and beyond to just the very good impact of the person-centered skills. I'm really curious about like, what do you think is when when someone has uh, or is demonstrating a lot of sustained talk um, and, and that, you know, being associated with outcomes, um, what do you think exactly like is going on in there? Well, we find what we say persuasive, okay? And we're accustomed to doing things the way we normally do them. Uh, and so with an ambivalent person, it's not at all, mm. when, they, when they walk into a smoking cessation clinic, uh, for example, there's no no mystery what the conversation is going to be about, you know? Uh, but it's not surprising also for the early things that a client says to be about, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I want to do this. I've tried. It's been hard. Um, and if you argue against those things, you actually evoke more of it. You know? mm. Now, that was addiction treatment in the 1970s and 80s. Mm. Uh, the clients are in denial, and you need to refute and educate and you know, be the expert and, and overcome their denial. You know? And doing that invites more. You know? And guess what? Clients are more likely to believe what they say than what we say. Mm. Uh, so that was one of the insights in the in the beginning of this that that uh, both things matter. Now sometimes you, you get only sustained talk because the person has no motivation for change. I mean, it, they're at what Prochaska and DiClemente called uh, the uh, pre-contemplation stage. They haven't even thought about it. You know? But very few people walk into an addiction treatment center or a smoking mm. cessation center not having thought about it. Yeah. Yeah. Chances. Chances. At that point. Yeah. It's come up. It's come up at some point. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't end up here on accident. No. Even if they're pushed through the door by their family or the courts, you know. Right. It's still been going on to some extent. And so they have both arguments within them. You can imagine a, a kind of committee inside the person, you know. Interesting. And the question is, which members of the committee do you invite most to speak? Hmm. Uh, and we're trying to invite the change talk speakers, the people that see, well, I can see that, you know, yeah, I've been overdoing it a little bit uh, to invite that speech and then respond to it with reflective listening uh, and with curiosity and with affirmation uh, and with, with summaries that pull it together which is a kind of unusual experience for people. You know? Big time. Sorry. Our, nor our normal experience is to think of a reason to change and then think of a reason not to change and then stop thinking about it because it's kind of unpleasant <laughs> to think about it, you know? Yeah. And what we're doing is helping people stay with as much as possible, stay with the change talk. But if you're getting a bunch of sustained talk up front, the best thing you can do is listen to it well, mm -hmm. reflect it well, basically you're saying i get it i hear you and normally what happens then is the person begins to give you a little bit of change talk just to see what you'll do with it you know? yeah because that's in there too sometimes there is no change talk sometimes a person just they just do not want to change and they get to make that decision but yeah. but for the most part when you listen well to sustained talk in the beginning then you begin to hear yeah the other side of the ambivalence and you really pay attention to it. You get curious about it. You ask about it. You reflect it. You affirm it. You put it in summaries. 
uh, and you're helping people talk themselves into changing. Yeah. I think that's I, I, one of the beautiful things about motivational interviewing broadly is just how skillful it is in helping people ask questions and how to how to be with people and listen, and also how much it invites people's autonomy into the room. I find just really critical, you know, yeah. like when you start with like, tell me why you like using, for instance, just like totally yeah. not what they're used to. And right. it's like, tell yeah. me what you, tell me what it's doing for you. What do you love about it? What, how's, what's it not doing for you? Let's have a balanced consideration about things that are happening. And then that you can, from there really hear about it. Right. And, you know, one of the things in the, in the early trainings I did uh, in MI, you know, really talked about the way to use reflection, just mm -hmm. real like a scalpel, to, you know, you can, you can just kind of repeat back what people said, you know, but then to do the complex reflections where you, you know, synthesize multiple pieces of data over the session or multiple sessions and reflect back, not just what they said, uh, but, but kind of uh, the quote that they talked about is that it shouldn't just be re repetition. It should be a revelation uh, for the person, which I think is a quote from, from Carl Rogers uh, mm -hmm. to, to talk about how to, how to do those types of things. And it's just so um such a different experience for the client than I think they're used to talking about their substance use. It is. I, I talk about continuing the paragraph. Uh, so rather than repeating what the person just said, which they already said, mm. I mean, that's, that's a simple reflection, but if that's all you do, it just goes around in circles. Uh, and what you can offer as a complex reflection is what might be the next sentence, mm. what they, what they haven't quite said yet. Or sp know. speak the unspoken. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. So yeah. you're list listening for those things or the feeling underneath it. Or you're, so yeah. you're adding to it. Now, there is something for your audience that I need to say, particularly uh, for the addiction audience. And that is this idea of decisional balance mm. popped up, particularly in smoking cessation for some reason. And with the idea that, well, what is a decisional balance? You, you listen to the reasons why you'd want to change and you listen to the reasons why you wouldn't want to change. Uh, and you listen to the, you know, good things about each and the not so good things about each four boxes, you know, uh, and you listen to them equally. Now, it, it, that never made theoretical sense to me about why that would help people change, because from an MI perspective, you're equally evoking change talk and sustained talk. The expected mm. outcome would be ambivalence, you know. So I dug into the literature and, and did a lit review with Gary Rose on what actually happens when you do a decisional balance. And if the person you're talking to is ambivalent, the outcome of a decisional balance is it decreases their commitment to change, it actually huh. move, moves them in the opposite direction. But somebody got the idea that this would be a cool way to get people to change, and it's not, you know. Uh, but it's you find it in smoking cessation manuals all the time. Ask about all the reasons why, all the reasons why you don't want to change. No. That's like like dumb questions in motivational interviewing. Why haven't you changed? You know, well the, <laughs> the the answer to that question is all the sustained talk. You know, yes. You you want right. to you want to invite the change talk in, uh, instead differentially. It's not that you ignore sustained talk right. at all. You can't do that. You do that at your peril. But but uh, you you pay attention to what you're hearing and differentially focus on and evoke and get curious about the person's own motivations for change. Well, and I, and I think one of the important parts about motivational interviewing from how I've learned it is that it is not necessarily a one size fits all approach for every moment, mm. um, for every person, but for even for every moment. And sometimes you're doing something and, and you 
roll, you know, roll with the resistance and you, and you need to back off and, and sort of move, move in another direction. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I think the decisional balance kind of like sort of sets out a parameter to do this exact thing, finish the whole thing. When in reality, you might not need to do all of that and you, you might need. You don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And well, it, and that's one reason we switched to the four process model of, of engaging, focusing, evoking and planning mm -hmm. and knowing where you are in that process matters. You know? uh, so starting with engaging, that's that's developing a trusting relationship, listening well to the person, letting them know you care about them, you're hearing what they're saying. You know? And that doesn't have to take eight sessions. I mean, that you see that happening in a few minutes in in skillful MI sessions. Focusing then is where are we going? You know, the the question in engaging is can we take a walk together? You know? Yeah. And in focusing is where are we going? Uh, so there you're looking at shared goals, not imposed goals, <laughs> shared goals, which is a crucial, a crucial piece of working alliance. Um, once you have shared goals, then you begin evoking uh, the person's own motivation to make the change. Uh, and once there seems to be sufficient motivation to move forward, then you begin talking about how. That's the planning process. Hmm. But as you said, you need to backtrack. Yeah. And sometimes you're starting into planning and whoops, person, I'm not too sure I want to do this. You can back up to evoking or you know, yeah. back up to focusing. Is it is this really where you want to go? Or even back up to engaging, you know, you you kind of created some distance from the client. You need to get re-engaged. So it's a flexible model of of being aware of where you are. And there's there are certain things you do at one in one process, but not in the other. So I think that that was a helpful evolution of our thinking that happened with the third edition. The, it's the fourth edition just came out that just came out this year. Yeah, I have my my third edition actually sitting here right next to me. And I vividly remember that that chapter and, and thinking through this idea of like not assuming that once you've moved on to the next step, um, that you're going to stay uh, in that step. Um, no, no. Yeah. You don't, you don't clap your hands together and say, well, we're done with that now. Yeah. yeah like, well, why, why are we talking about focusing <laughs> again? Yeah. Well, we got that I, motivation stuff out of the way. You know, yeah. I, I do think it would be a valuable discussion. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. The sh you, you mentioned shared goals versus yeah. imposed goals. And a, lo a lot of um, therapy uh, with patients um, experiencing addiction, there's some sort of mandate, either family mandate or court mandate or yeah. Yeah. Uh, so something of the sort. And how how do you in those early sessions in the early moments um move from this sort of acknowledgement of okay you're here because of this um to finding the shared goal yeah well i mean the listening piece of it the engaging piece of it is really crucial um i mean the, there are there are treatment programs where in the first session you have to come up with a treatment plan you know? mm. that's leaping all the way to planning it's Skipping like a over. requirement for a lot of insurance <laughs> that, at this point. Yeah. <laughs> it often it often isn't actually, but oh. but, but at least we assume or the or the program says you got to have right, a treatment right. plan right exactly. away. Exactly. Yeah, it's a policy. Well, I mean, yeah, at least. You, you may have a plan, but the client doesn't at this point. Sure. Uh, and your treatment plan can be to continue exploring the person's motivation for change. So that's you know that's it. That's an option. Just a, a different a different run at it. Um, 
but not not getting ahead of your client. I mean, that's that's a kind of one of our basic ideas that uh, you know don't be don't be running to planning if the client's kind of back at can I trust you? Is this uh, you know or, or do we do we have a relationship here? So mm-hmm. stay with where the client is, and then they'll usually come with you. You know, so um, clients half of the clients that we saw in the addiction treatment center were pushed through the door. And, yeah. And probably more than that, they just didn't admit it, you know, um, but they didn't want to be there. They wouldn't have chosen to be there on their own. You acknowledge that and you listen to, you know, what they have to say, you know, and uh, and then again, as you do that, well, change talk begins to pop up a little bit and you can yeah. get interested in and focus on that. So it's in um, in Project Match. Clients who were more angry and resistive, it was even more important that they get motivational interviewing rather than straight into cognitive behavior therapy. Um, well, that, that makes sense from from our perspective. If somebody comes in the door and they're ready to go, I, I need to quit smoking. I want to quit smoking. Tell me what to do. You don't spend a lot of time in evoking. Well, what are the good things and less good things about it for you? <laughs> that, that, that that doesn't make any sense. You know? So you go. So you go with the planning if that's yeah. where they where they seem to be, and then if you run into reluctance and you back up and you, you know, do some more evoking and getting clear what the goal is. So it's it's flexible. It's hard to write a manual for it. I I wrote a manual in in for one study. Uh, and made a big mistake uh, by doing so, which was I prescribed do this, then do then do this, then do this, and then and then do a change plan at the end. And we we watched clients' motivation by listening to the sessions increase nice and steadily. And then we got to the change plan. About two thirds of the clients were okay. About one third of the clients didn't want to go there. Said, oh, I'm not, not sure I'm ready, but my manual said, but you have to have a change plan. Yeah. <laughs> and I had obedient therapists, you know, <laughs> who said, well, but we still need it and crash. Went the motivation down to zero. They lost all the gains that they had made up to that mm. point. Uh, so it, it's hard. It's hard to manualize as a do this, then do this, then do this kind of manual. You know? um, it's, it's a way of working with people. And you need to kind of have the big picture of understanding that way of being with people rather than thinking of it in a stepwise function. Yeah, I think that's really an important part of it is the is this like the quality of the interaction, right? Mm-hmm. And and the relationship building as you kind of when we very first started asking about what were the mechanisms or even your description of how you kind of developed it was this way of being with people, a way of asking questions, right? And a way of respecting people's autonomy and evoking, you know, questions that help us to kind of curate their own arguments for change mm-hmm. that allow us to cultivate motivation. Um, and I think that it's one of those things that's really hard to like um, put into like a session one, session two, session three, or step one, step two, step three, Oh yeah, uh, kind of, kind of checklist manual, but mm-hmm. more as like phases of treatment that you need to identify where you are kind of like, you know, stages of change model, right. Where it's circular, mm-hmm. where you can move backwards and forwards in it. Yes. That's one of the things I like about the about the the four uh, phases that you've kind of talked about, um, and, and it sounds like that kind of was a, it was a newer thing that came in that wasn't originally in there. And no, I was hoping maybe we could mm-hmm. talk a little bit about how MI has evolved over the years in your mind, um, as you've kind of you know taken closer looks at things. Well, we've learned a lot. I mean, you 
you see, for example, a big jump from the second to the third edition in uh, emphasis on change talk and sustained talk uh, and specificity about those. Well, one reason for that was my colleague, Paul Omrine, who's a psycholinguist and came to the psych department here at UNM. And as I listened to actually his candidating speech, he was he was talking about how people make commitments to each other uh, and how you respond to that. And so and one of the things he said is it it doesn't go well if you get ahead of the readiness of the person that you're talking to. I said, well, now that, that sounds real familiar. Um, yeah. And and so we started having conversations and he said, no, change talk is. That's, I mean, honestly, it's kind of a messy idea from a psycholinguist perspective because you're mixing together all kinds of things that are different to my ear. So, well, teach me about that. Well, that's where desire came from. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I I want to, I wish I could, I would like to. That's that's one kind of language about motivation for change. Very different from ability language. I could, I'm able to, yeah. uh, I, I can think about how I would do that, you know, uh, very different from reasons for change. You know? If then, if, if I did quit smoking, my children would be happy. They beg me, you know, please, daddy, stop, stop smoking, you know, or I'd have more money to spend or just, you know, the things that come up when with addiction, yeah. um, which are different from need language. Paul said, there's, there's also kind of, language that's imperative uh that i have to i've got to i've got to lose weight you know i have to do something about my drug use you know it doesn't really say why and doesn't say i want to and doesn't say i can but there's an urgency to it as well and so he taught us those threads all of those different from commitment i will you know um, and then commitment turned out to be a little more complex than we realized to begin with. And so we came up with now what's called activation language, which is almost commitment. You know, I'm willing to. You know? mm. um, if you go to the altar to get married, you don't say I'm willing to. You know, you, you say I do or I will. You, know? yeah. you don't say I want to or, uh, you know, it'd be a good idea if I did. You know? Uh, so we, we we know the difference between commitment language and things that are close to it. But you listen to those things that are close to it also that we call activation language. And then we came up with uh, taking steps also is something else that happens. Clients come back and they've done something that actually moves them a little closer to making the change. I, I bought a pair of running shoes this week. Oh, wow. Been talking about exercise, you know. Whoa, Wow. Uh, I, I threw out all the cigarettes in, in the house, you know, just little steps they've taken that, that move in the direction of change and also predict the change happening. So so we came up with those seven categories of change talk that it's not all of change talk, but they're, they're helpful ones for thinking of what can I ask? <laughs> what what uh, because one of the yeah. one of the simplest way to evoke change talk is to ask a question, the answer to which is change talk. <laughs> and if you think about the different kinds of change talk, then you can come up with questions of, you know, that, well, if you did decide to do this, I know you're not ready yet, but if you did decide to do this, you know an awful lot about yourself. How would you do it in order to succeed? You know, that's ability language. Yeah. Yeah. Well, why would you want to make this change? That's desire language. What would you say are the three best reasons for you to do this, even though you're not particularly wanting to? That's reasons language, you know, 
How important is it for you to change? Zero to 10 scale. We use, you scale sometimes. 10 is this is the most important thing in your life. Zero is not at all important. What number would you give yourself? Four. Okay. And why four and not zero? That's the important question. Yeah, that's a good one. You want to ask why why four and not 10, you know? Answer to that is sustained talk. You know? yeah. <laughs> so so that we have all these specific ways of inviting clients to give us their own arguments, their own motivations yeah. for change. And that's what persuades them. It's one of the things I really love about motivational interviewing, which is the um the nuance in language. Oh yes. And, and the purpose in question and in pauses and in framing four to zero versus four to ten mm-hmm. um can be it's it can be very compelling, can also be very difficult, I think, to do. Well if you're struggling with now what's a reflection and how do I do that? I mean that then it's hard to do it strategically and think right. now if I say this reflection, how the client going to respond? If I say this one, so it, it's a matter of learning skills along the right, way, right. and you you got to get comfortable first with how to do reflective listening. It's it's hard to go much further yeah. with motivational interviewing until that's kind of comfortable for you. you know? Well, uh, and, oh, sorry, I I don't, no, no, I don't mean to fine. interrupt at all, but no, I mean that kind of gets at I think um, to what I think is also critical that maybe we haven't talked much about though, is, is the, the spirit of MI is sort of embodying the, these sort of ways of approaching and, and maybe with patients, but maybe even, um, I, I wonder how am I sort of, this is my wild, I always have one wild card question. So th- this is my wild card question for the episode, but how does that like come out in, in your like everyday life, um, embodying the spirit of MI? Well, I, I mean, one thing that I would be studying if I were still doing research, which I'm not, is, is how learning a person-centered approach or how learning motivational interviewing changes the person who's learning it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because I have heard so many stories from people about, you know, this this saved my life and this 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 changed me. I was on the edge of burning out and then I got this. I wish I'd learned it 20 years ago, but but it really changed the way I feel about my work and how I do it. It just does something to the provider as well. If you really get into it. Uh, and if you stick around long enough to be a trainer, we have a motivational living network of trainers. Most of the people in that organization are just lovely people. I mean, they listen yeah. to you and they're interested in you. And so it kind of shapes you over time. It certainly changed me over time. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and w- why did we come up with the spirit? Well, the book came out in 91 Steve and I started training people how to do motivational interviewing in 93, actually how to teach it in 93. And pretty quickly, we saw people doing what we told them to do, and we hated it. (laughs) It was like they were trying to use techniques on people to trick them into changing. Uh, And that's not their fault. That's my fault. You know, we, we left something out that's important. And it was the attitude or the spirit with which you practice it yeah. that we now talk about as partner partnership. We're side by side in this together. I'm not an expert talking down to you. Acceptance of the person as they are. You know? uh, compassion for the person, which means the reason we're having this conversation is their well-being, not mine. You know, hmm. um, 
and then empowerment uh, that, that recognizing that the person really has the wisdom and the uh, a lot of what they need to make the changes and it, you know in a significant way it's up to them uh, when you have that in your heart when you have that in your mind then you behave a little differently um you, there's not so much sarcasm in your voice you know? yeah uh and and so that's some of the subtlety learn just learn to love and pay such attention to language both the language i'm using and also what i'm hearing from the client hmm. because it tells me how it's going and where to go next yeah yeah, yeah i i love that i mean i think of the therapeutic relationship as like a, a microcosm of how the individual is interacting with their environment. Um, and I think people, patients, clients are, are really um, skilled at picking up on, on very small signs, human signs, you know, of, of what is, what is a signal of love or what is a signal of criticism. Yeah. And, yeah, you know, I think we sort of, one of the things that I think motivational interviewing teaches is that, we are sort of an opportunity to respond differently than the way that they would expect us to, or, or maybe that the way that they, they, people typically respond to them. The way they wish we'd respond to them at least. Yeah. Know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. There, there, there is just a whole lot of subtlety there. Some, somebody in a training asked me once, what, what's the difference between doing MI and being MI? Cause I talked about it becoming a way of being. And I just immediately said about ten years, <laughs> which which I think was a, a little a little too snarky, but but it's at least getting practicing yeah. it. It starts to change you. It starts to get it. You begin to pay a little more attention to clients. You begin to you become more accepting as you express acceptance. You know, you become more empathic as you express empathy for what's happening with the client. Uh, so there's there's a lot to it. It's not, it's not. Rogers was worried about people thinking he was just talking about techniques that like the technique of reflective listening. Yeah. Well, there's, there's a, a great review just came out uh, showing that, that the technique itself doesn't do it. If you just count reflections, no effect uh, that, that it's something between that and what Rogers was talking about is accurate empathy, which mm. includes, includes the, spirit the way of thinking that what you're what's in your voice as you're doing it yeah yeah, yeah. i think it's it's just so um skillful and i think the, the thing that it, it that's changed me as i've you know worked in mi spaces for a long time now is like like the way i hear words right and the way that i understand not just what they're saying but what they're meaning and and how to to catch it and hold it and kind of offer a, a direction with it. Um, you know, the way I, I always liken it to maybe like, um, uh, like, like a judo or something like that, where like you catch somebody's momentum and you kind of move it and use their own momentum to move mm -hmm. them in, in a different direction. And that, that like learning how to just kind of catch and, and be with that and understand the language and how to use my own language then to uh, evoke change talk, for instance, right. Versus, you know, you could you could yeah, ask the same question in a couple different ways and have totally different directions that kind of yeah. bounce off it depending on how I said it, the language I used to say it, whether it was open ended or close ended or the all tone, these different yeah. the tone, the volume, the rate, all of those things affect how it, how it lands with the next person, uh, and learning those subtleties takes real time and energy, but once you kind of hear it, and you can pick pick it up in the room, it really changes. 
um, something about the interaction. Well, you can get better at this. I mean, uh, one of the, we pointed this out in the Effective Psychotherapist book. One of the best replicated findings is that psychotherapists don't get better with practice. That is, your your outcomes after thirty years of practice are about the same yeah. as they were when you started. Now that's depressing, you know. But why why is that? You know, well, you're getting no feedback. You you're, you're mm. practicing behind closed doors. That yeah. sur- surgeons show a practice a big practice effect. I mean, the more they've done gallbladders, yeah. the, the better the outcomes of their patients are. And they got people standing around watching them also, by the way. We, we don't have that advantage in psychotherapy. Yeah. So you need to find a way to be getting feedback. Deliberate practice is one way to do it. But in MI, also your clients are constantly teaching you because mm-hmm. you're paying attention to when you make that reflection, what happens? Oops, that wasn't a good idea. And so you can begin to adjust over time and people really can and do get better at what they're doing over time. Yeah, you gave a keynote at at uh, the Collaborative Perspectives on Addiction Conference in um, in New Mexico, 2017, 2018. Uh, and I remember this point. This is one of the points you were making is that um, also, in, in addition to what you just said, like finding a group of people who you can meet regularly and, and do some sort of practice or peer supervision yeah. um, has also been shown to improve outcomes. Well, we do, we do this in sports, you know, yeah. I mean, you, yeah. you, pra- you practice your foul shots when you're not playing the game, you know, outside of it, you do it in music. You don't, you don't just practice when you're doing a performance, you know, you kind of work on it over time. And, and that deliberate practice effect is, is one of the only things that, that improves uh, therapist skills and outcome over time. Yeah. That's a really interesting point, I which explains that. a lot, actually. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I did. A, I had to do some motivational interviewing trainings um, as a function of getting a licensed addiction counselor credential, which I have in addition to my psychology license. Uh-huh. Um, part of that part of that is the supervision structure here we have at Colorado and so forth. Um, and part of that, they required you to take a set of motivational interviewing trainings. What didn't matter what your degree was or if you've been trained in it before, you had to do these. And one of the things that I, 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 I you know, I don't remember a ton about the training because I already knew a lot about MI, except for these practices that you just mm-hmm. described. It was it was three therapists in a triangle, each doing one of the skills, reflective listening or you know affirmations or these types of things, kind of in a chain, trying to like do it from what the last person said, um, and that just. I remember how much it just like, it was like, oh yes, I have, I haven't, I haven't seen a client in a little bit. And I really just like took me back there quickly. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, I picked up on what other people were doing that yeah. I felt really great when they said, so now I'm in the, I'm in the patient chair, right. Which doesn't happen a lot in the training that we have, where I get to be the person who's getting questions asked of, right. In a clinical space or clinical mm-hmm. context. And so I get to both ex- examine my own feelings and reactions to their question while also learning how to ask the next que- next question. Uh, and that synergy yes. of being both the my experience and then watching how my words affect the experience of another really took it home for me. And so, that's, yeah, that, that's really interesting that you, that you mentioned this is uh, kind of have some personal experience in that regard. When I almost never do role play anymore when I'm teaching motivational interviewing, 
we do what's called real play where the person who's speaking is speaking about themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. We did the same in this one. Yeah. And that's, I think that's become a, a norm in MI, in MI mm-hmm. training because when you're role playing, you're pretending to be somebody you're not. Yeah. Uh, there, there are no clients as difficult as those role played by therapists. <laughs> they, they don't exist, you know? Yeah. That's a great point. And, yeah. and even, even professional actors don't, don't react like real people do. They yeah. they act in a role, you know. Yeah. So uh, and so. Well, especially with the nuance that we've already just dis- you know oh. discussed that 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 language consists yes. of, you know. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So both people are really learning when you're doing real play. The the person who's practicing, sure, but the person talking about him or herself, they're also getting. Oh, this is what this feels like. Oh, mm. I see what happens when when the therapist does this or, you know, and so you get a lot of active learning happening at the same time. Yeah. Uh, I know we're sort of coming up on time and I'm kind of calling it audible, but I'm, I feel like we'd be missing an opportunity not to ask if you'd be willing to, to do a little bit of real play. Oh, sure. All in, all I need is something that you are thinking about changing or you want to change and haven't done it yet. Noah, do you have anything that comes to mind or that's I want to watch it. All right. One thing I've been thinking about lately, I guess, is a, a lot, you know, that the evening is sort of winding down. I find myself like watching television, like sitting down and instead of doing something else that I, I think I find more valuable, I, I find myself watching a lot of television. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. It's and easy, so I, easy yeah. to do. Yeah. So what well, you've been thinking about it. Why is that? Well, because I guess I I feel a little bit like that's not really how I want to be. Like if I were to look back on the past month, I I don't necessarily want to be like, oh, well, every night I I you know, I finished another watch through of the office, you know, again. <laughs> uh-huh. Um not, not something you're proud of. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, and I, I'd rather, you know, I don't know, maybe like something like I, there have been times where I, I was better at reading at night. And so, yeah, yeah, yeah. getting, yeah. So I, I've been, I don't know, I guess that's what I've been thinking a little bit about, but it's just, it can be, you know, it's the end of the day. I, I, you know, I've worked hard, had a lot of meetings or something and um, yeah, just wanting to sort of relax and unwind is, is sort of the other side of that, I guess. Well, which is, which is okay too, just to kind of settle down. And so you want some of that in your life. And you're feeling maybe it's a little bit too much at this point, and there's something I could be doing that would be better. Yeah, that that sounds about right. Yeah, maybe you're right. It's not like I want it all to change, but just just some. Yeah. Right. Yeah, like more mm-hmm. balance. And what you mentioned one thing that you could do instead, which is is reading. But what are other things that occur to you of ways that you could use that same time that you would feel better about? Um, I guess, again, I think a lot of times I just feel tired at the end of the night, but I, you know, a lot of people I want to keep up with and, and, you know, spend time talking to. And so, Uh you know, call, calling a friend, I don't know, that could be another or, or, or a relative. Just catching up with people you care about. Yeah. Uh Which again is maybe a little bit more difficult in terms of it requires a lot of energy, but yeah, maybe more meaningful. And and how is it meaningful? Well, I don't know. I like I live I live far from a lot of the people that I care a lot about. Um, mm-hmm. And 
I think everyone's busy. And um, when I can spend some time to still be connected with them, I think like that, I guess that matters more to me than like watching The Office again, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Which I am literally just watching The Office over and over again. Sure. So, sure. <laughs> yeah. So it, it renews a connection that you have, which is probably meaningful to them too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think like, you know, there's kind of a loneliness epidemic going on in our country. And I think part of that is because people don't, yeah, connect. So I, I do feel like kind of what you just mentioned was that it would feel good to me, but it might also feel good to them. I would think people like being listened to and like, <laughs> like c connecting with somebody who cares about them. Yeah. We don't have enough of that, huh? Yeah. yeah. What would be a reasonable amount of change then? How many, what are you thinking in terms of office nights versus uh, trying something else nights? Yeah. I mean, let's see here. Just as a, as a first step to try it out. Uh, I mean, I guess what I think would definitely be doable. I would like to do more than this, but I think what would definitely be doable is to choose one night a week yeah. or, or next week, even maybe just one night, one time. Yeah. And just say, I'm going to not turn on the television tonight. I'm going to call someone. And then after that conversation's over, I'm going to read. Okay. That so that could be Wednesdays or just whatever day you, you pick when that day comes around, that's your reminder to eh, let's try something different tonight. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I like that plan actually. Yeah. yeah. Might even do it. Huh? <laughs> I think I will. Uh-huh. Okay. I think I will. Yeah. Well, that's what five or seven minutes of Yeah, yeah. Demonstration. Yeah. I really appreciate that. I mean, that was um it was interesting again, like you said, to be in like like Noah was discussing, to be sort of on on that other side and to you know, to be listened to. But also to hear both sides, uh, all of the, like you said, everyone at the table, all the whole committee, mm -hmm. sort of bringing forth different sides of it. Um, and another thing that we didn't, we haven't discussed, well, maybe a little bit here and there, but that, that you brought up was the meaning component. That that was really convincing to me. So yeah, so, uh, so those are those are sort of some of my initial reactions. Uh, thank, mm -hmm. thank you for doing that. Well, of course. Just a way of having a conversation. Yeah, and that's the that's the beauty of the of the MI approach, right? Is it's it's easy to just kind of flow in and out of, and like you said, is it changes you, um, and and I think just the quality of being with people in this way just is so different than our casual relationships in life. You know, to really be heard and then to to people to be curious about what's going on with you in a way that's non-judgmental and really just trying to listen is so different. Right. Mm. Um, just really, I think super powerful. And so, um, you know, I, I, it, it comes from an addiction space, which is, you know, the, the um, kind of thematic part of our podcast here, but um, you know, it's really a way of, you can be this way with your family and friends and stuff. Like you talked about uh, the difference between doing MI and being MI. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so, you know, thank you so much for, for doing a demonstration on the fly like that. It's so yeah, thank you. kind of you. Sure. Yeah. We asked at, at intake, a client came in one time and a counselor said, why, why did you come here? And he said, they, a friend told me this is a place where they listen to addicts. 
<laughs> That's a reputation you want to have. Yeah. Agreed. It, it shouldn't be a sales pitch for one place. Uh, right. <laughs> but, <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> but unfortunately it can be. So yeah, that is a, that is a reputation you want to have. And, and yeah, thank you so much for doing that. I personally just am going to remember that for the rest of my career, but also, um, uh, I hope that, it, you know, I think that was a good demonstration of some of what we discussed today. Mm-hmm. Um, so Agreed. Um, if you have a few more minutes, we have just like a, maybe a few more sort of wrap ups. Come I on. Do. Great. So one thing we wanted to, and you mentioned a few of these, but I wonder if there's any that you really want to highlight. Um, like what, uh, whether, you know, what's in the new edition of the manual, what's changed? Uh, what do you think is like important for, for mm-hmm. listeners to know, especially those that have read the third edition. Yes. Yeah. Okay. We we knew the fourth edition could be bigger and more complicated, <laughs> uh, and we both Steve and I really wanted to move in the opposite direction. Yeah. Uh, we wanted to simplify. We were inspired by a quote uh, from a a, a jurist, Oliver Oliver Wendell Yeah, Oliver Wendell Holmes, mm. uh, Jr. I think, Supreme Court Justice. Who said I? Uh, I don't give a fig for simplicity on this side of complexity, but I would give my life for simplicity on the far side of complexity. Hmm. And we thought we've been at this forty years now, uh, and can we say this more simply? Can we? And we need to because actually, am I being used way, way beyond psychotherapy and counseling? In in healthcare, in leadership, uh, it, in you know, social work and child protective services, in correctional facilities, just all kinds of places, um, and and so also we we want to move a bit away from psychotherapy jargon, mm. and see if we could really focus on the essence on what's what's important, uh, and to say it in somewhat simpler terms. Uh, so the fourth edition is 30% smaller than the third edition, which is, is not the way things usually go. One, two, and three, each, each one got bigger and more complicated and so on. Uh, it's still very well sourced, still very well referenced, but we uh, dropped APA style where you're reading a sentence and suddenly there's a parentheses and a bunch of names and dates, which people outside of psychology aren't that familiar with. Right. And we just put in endnotes, little numbers. So if you really want to know what's behind what we just said, you can find it. Yeah. But it doesn't get in the way of reading it. So that was another another thing we did. What's what really are the essentials here? We we changed some of the terminology away from technical jargon to more everyday language. Uh, we we broadened one of the aspects of MI spirit from evocation to empowerment, which is I think is more more say, saying what we're doing, even though evoking from people is empowering. Uh, there's a lot more to it than that, you know. Mm. So there's, and I think we just understand it better. Each, there, there are things we learned. For example, we've learned in the last 10 years that affirmation evokes change talk. Didn't know that before, but when you're, particularly when you're pointing out to people something you see about them that is a strength, yeah. Some, something they do well, something that's uh, that's good about them. Change talk is more likely to pop up. Well, mm. I guess it kind of makes sense, but didn't know that, you know. So, 
there have always been these disco- discoveries, and we never knew in writing one edition what the next one would be like. Uh, but by the time we got there, we knew what we wanted to do. And so that's what we did with our with our fourth edition to make it, I hope, clearer and simpler and speaking to a much broader audience. Um, we Because therapists are still important as readers, we included some boxes for therapists. You know? So here, here's the language you're familiar with and things that may be of particular interest to you as a therapist, but not all readers of this book are therapists or, you know, know the jargon or particularly interested in that. Uh, so that was, that was a major change too. And our publisher was nervous about it. Um, but we said, this is what we want to do. And so we, so we did. We'll see. We have personal reflection boxes. Steve and I, at the end of every chapter, one of us just talks about something personal in relation to the development of motivational interviewing. But, mm. So that's there. We updated the, mm. Uh, the terminology and the glossary, you know, so it's it's updated also, added 10 more years of findings, but in everyday language. So yeah. I, I, I'm very happy with it. Yeah. I think that's really important. I think um, that's one of the parts I think about therapy and about just our, our field broadly that can be a challenge is that inaccessibility of the language we use sometimes and yes. on a technique that focuses so much on the importance of language it is ironic sometimes that we use so much jargon, right? They're really technical and specific, and I get that, but also inaccessible to many people. And I think I really sincerely appreciate an approach now where we're kind of the arc is tilting the other direction where we're trying to create clarity and and simplicity so that people can really pick up these ideas and, and work with them. And then, um, yeah. yeah, just the accessibility of it, I think, so key, but also adding these personal anecdotes. Um, yes. You know, somebody yeah. once explained to me, um, I believe it was Carl Hart was talking about how like we, we our, our memory really works in ways that remember narrative stories. And so adding these personal examples and, and anecdotes really help solidify the lessons mm-hmm. as we see them in life and allows it to just kind of get caught in our memory easier. Um, you know, that's how our lives are lived and that's how stories are told. And so, you know, adding that flavor to the to the manual, um, I'm guessing is probably going to have a, a pretty nice effect. Yeah, we have certainly have stories from a much broader range of applications also. Um, and so examples from from healthcare, from parenting, from you know, other areas that people can uh, relate to and where MI is being used. It's really cool to see the, the growth of it and um, being applied in a lot of different ways uh, to help people communicate and to help people uh, make decisions they, you know, they want to make that, you know, where do you think the field still needs to go? Well, it, I mean, it goes on its own. It, I mean, so, <laughs> so I, I never have quite known how to answer the question of where's it going because 10 years later, I'm surprised that, well, I hadn't thought, I hadn't thought of this in dentistry, but actually, yeah, it does, it does make sense. <laughs> um, but especially that it crosses cultures. Mm-hmm. You know, psychotherapies often don't do that for them when they're developed in the West. Uh, clinical trials are appearing amazingly from Africa, India, Iran, Malaysia. Uh, I mean, very different cultures from Western culture. But there's something about this that people seem to recognize. And that's the verb I use. That it's 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 us. I mean, ambivalence are us, you know. Mm. 
and we know kind of that when somebody, when we're feeling two ways about something and a person gives us the answer, that doesn't feel good, you know? Uh, yeah. And I, it's actually worse than doesn't feel good. It kind of pushes you in the opposite direction. And we kind of know that, you know? Uh, and so it's just interesting how many fields and how many cultures people are finding something useful in motivational interviewing. And it, not something I anticipated, expected, that this would be turning up in so many helping professions mm. in, in you know, 70 languages around the world. I mean, man. Uh, so I'm, I'm astonished and grateful and amazed that, at what has happened with this uh, little little fire that we added a little bit of kindling to, so yeah. You know, and and as you already mentioned, people naturally do this sometimes, and some people are naturally yes. decent at it. But you've given a language, um, you've given a process, and a way of understanding, a way to teach and to learn um, how to communicate better with others, um, and how to communicate better with with patients and clients and to get at the heart of what somebody wants and to explore that. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's a, it's a huge honor to just be even talking to you honestly right now. Um, and to have spent this time with you and yeah, we, you know, we're, we're just extremely thankful for the the service that you've provided to, to all of us and, and to all of our patients as well. Nothing I would rather have done. Well, we like to leave our guests with just, you know, 30 second nuggets. Um, for specific stakeholder groups. So what do you think the take-home message for people who are in recovery would be? Hmm. Uh, that you have within you most of what you need. Uh, most people get better on their own without expert help. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, being being in touch with what are your own reasons for change? What's, what's most important? Why? So, I think those are the things that strike me of how how wise people are, even though they don't feel it at that particular moment. Uh, and uh, you know, just kind of following their own sense of what what is the best thing to do and how to do that. You know, yeah. that sounds awfully simplistic, but it's I I have learned that that the person, person with the answer is sitting across from me. Yeah, the world. Yeah, the world leading expert in their life is them, right? Exactly. And, Nobody and, knows more. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and I think, and a lot of people come to start to doubt themselves when they, you know, uh, find themselves, you know, struggling. Yeah. So I think I think to refresh their um, their perspective on that is is absolutely critical. What What do you think the take home message um, is for practitioners? Mm. Relationship matters. Uh, mm. It matters not only what you do but how you do it. Um, and being, being yourself, being, being your real person in this relationship, uh, you're not an expert on somebody else, you know, you're a companion on the journey. Uh, and we have a wonderful menu of ways of helping people with addiction. So Hmm. it's not a, there is no, you know, one size fits all, uh, you know, learn, learn different approaches because people need different things. And uh, gosh, there's been so much clinical science and addiction. Um, we just know a lot more than we didn't know that we didn't know 30 years ago. It's a take-home message for policymakers. Mm. Well, do what works is is 
is complicated. You know, we we have this evidence based practice movement, which essentially requires you have to say that you're doing evidence based practice. Mm. Um, mm. But it's hard to know without auditing in some way, without actually observing. It's it's like someone who wants me to teach them how to be a better counselor or how to do motivational interviewing, but not watch them. Yeah. Uh, which is like, you know, help me get better at my tennis game, but don't watch me. I'd be too embarrassed. You know, I, I can't do that. Uh, and so somehow being trust, trust and um, verify, I think is a, is, is something mm. the trusting is important and the verifying is important. So what, what are you actually doing? Look at the outcomes, you know, not yeah. just what people say they're doing, but me- but measure the outcomes. Uh, so there, there's accountability there too. Hmm. And what do you think the take-home messages for underserved populations? Mm. Well, an unexpected finding there was that motivational interviewing or this person-centered way of being is, if anything, more impactful with uh, with people from a, a background different from their provider. Hmm. Um, I, here we work with Native American tribes in the Southwest, uh, and they really have picked up on motivational interviewing. And one thing that that elders had told me is, this is how we talk to each other at home. Hmm. Um, in in a tribal context, to tell somebody what's wrong with them and what they should do is psychopathic behavior. I mean, you you, you simply wouldn't do that. You know, hmm. it just it just yeah. doesn't it doesn't fit. Uh, and so honor, honor that way of being with each other. You know, if, if, if you, if your ordinary way of being with people is to respect and listen to them, that's good, you know, <laughs> and, 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 uh, you know, don't assume you have expertise for somebody who's so different from yourself, but it, it looks like MI is particularly helpful, uh, with people who are from what we call minority backgrounds, um, relative to more privileged people who are accustomed to being treated with privilege, I think. Uh, So that's at least the message we have from our research. You've been obviously incredibly successful um, and and made a huge impact. And do you have any advice for, for trainees or, or or the rest of us psychologists and therapists out here? Trust and verify. (laughs) Trust, trust yourself you know and and also me- measure what you're doing verify because we mm. we're really prone to think we're we're much better at doing things than we are as just human nature you know so um, you, you know the vast majority of drivers say they're better than average drivers for example you know <laughs> uh, you know i think 90 percent of professors say they're in the top 75 percent you know and <laughs> you, you just you just can't be so uh and and some of the best lessons for me came out of research that had surprising outcomes when one was when i first evaluated my training in motivational interviewing I said well i really want people to learn this method so let's actually measure it let's let's get a sample of clinical practice before and after training um well it was humbling <laughs> now that the paper and pencil evaluations of my training were glowing i learned so much it was wonderful you just have so much expertise i'm using it every day in my practice 
And then we listen to tapes and there's no evidence I was there or, 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 or very little. I mean, right after training, there's a few more reflective listening statements that kind of disappear over time, you know, mm. and they think they're doing this. Uh, and, and, almost, and are, almost yeah. more dangerous. <laughs> well, it is. I mean, what, what I gave them was false confidence, mm. you know? Yeah. Now that that was kind of embarrassing and not not the outcome that I expected. But then why did I expect that people could sit in a room for a couple of days and then it would change them? You know, I, I don't expect that of clients. You know, uh, mm. why is that our continuing education model? So you see, it it caused me to ask some better questions, like, well, what does it actually take to help people learn this? And and so that's where research went. And it turns out what it takes uh, beyond the initial training is some feedback and coaching, you know, and not necessarily a lot of it. Uh, we did a randomized trial in which five half hour telephone coaching sessions in which we always practice skills made a significant difference in both acquisition and retention of learning. And that was the the only group whose clients changed was the group that got feedback and coaching both hmm. in, in addition to their uh, initial training. Well, that's an important finding. And it, it kind of isn't what we expected. It's not how we do continuing professional education. But it answered the question for me of, am, am I training well? And the answer was no, uh, that what you're doing is not enough. Uh, and so what else, rather than being discouraged or saying, well, I can't be right, you know, uh, to say, well, what could I try differently? And I think having that kind of openness is important in clinical practice, feedback informed practice, Scott Miller's work. Uh, if you get feedback every time from your clients, you get better at what you're doing. You know? yeah. uh, it's not routinely built into practice. And so we don't routinely get better at what we're doing. We just think we do. So trust and verify. We can we can easily deceive ourselves that we're doing the best we can. Um, so both both trust yourself and be skeptical, and uh, and keep learning. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, it was just so great to have you on the show, and I know this will be a tremendous resource for our listeners, and also just personally and professionally just super grateful for you taking the time to chat with us. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure.